Hey everyone, this CBC recording is going to be a little different than most of them. And the reason is because our sermon recording this past Sunday failed for some technical reasons. But I had several people come up to me and say how impactful um, the the sermon was. And they asked me if I would re-record it because they wanted to listen to it again or share it with friends. So I'm going to do that, but it's going to be me sitting here. Um, not in the pulpit on Sunday morning. So it's probably going to come across as a little bit different. Um, and, and this is a great moment to mention. I know there are those out there who listen to our sermons through our podcast or through the CBC website who are not connected with CBC, who are uh, different places around the country. And um, I know I'm really curious about who you are and how you find found out about CBC. So if you would be willing, I would love you to to jot us a note and say hello and just share who you are and how you found out about our podcast. If you don't want to give us your email, you could go to our website, communitybiblechurch.org, find the Contact Us page and just fill in the form there. Or you could email info at communitybiblechurch.org and we would love to just have you say hello. All right, so the... Scripture for this Sunday was 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 32. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 34. Sorry, I said 32. 12 to 34. A friend of a friend of mine is an insightful young pastor, a millennial. And he said recently, people my age think that nothing good is ever going to happen again. Now, that's a bit of an exaggeration, right? But if you've talked to young adults, maybe you've picked up the sense of pessimism that they're feeling right now. And and I think we can understand why. I mean, think of what they've lived through. A lot of the millennials were just entering the job market or trying to enter when the 2008 recession hit and were living in their parents' basements. There have been alarms about climate change during their whole lifetime. Corrupt and immoral celebrities and politicians. There's been COVID, George Floyd, riots and unrest, January 6th, strife on social media and at holiday family dinner tables, now inflation, the war in the Ukraine, and on and on it seems to go. In fact, at this year's, uh, is it the Davos or the Danvers meetings? The, the meetings among the the elites in Switzerland that happen every year. The word that everyone was using to describe our current reality at that meeting evidently was polycrisis. Polycrisis. Well, I have good news for us. Today's passage has good news for the millennials and for all of us. Something good is going to happen again. Something very good. I remember as a high school kid going to my first rock concert at the old JFK Stadium in Philadelphia. It was a sold-out show, 70,000 or more screaming fans, all hyped to see the biggest live act of that day, U2. And if you've ever seen U2, you probably understand why. On a good night when the band is on, something happens that's almost transcendent. 
I especially have always loved their guitarist, The Edge, his incredible sense of rhythm, his technical wizardry that allows him to make his one guitar sound like a whole orchestra, his ability to paint sonic landscapes and evoke deep emotions through his playing. Now, I realize U2 is not everyone's cup of tea, but for me as a young, impressionable teenager, I went home saying, wow, that was life-changing. I want to learn to play the guitar too. So question, have you ever had an experience like that? Something that inspired you, that took you to a mountaintop of some sort, metaphorically speaking, and showed you as you looked out at the incredible panorama, this is what's possible. This is what could happen. This is the sort of better future you could enjoy. Well, that's what the Apostle Paul, in a sense, is doing for us in today's passage. What a passage. In it, Paul is taking us by the hand and leading us up to the top of that mountain. And from there, like Moses on Mount Nebo, for those of you who know that story, we can see the whole promised land. We can see where the future is headed and what that future can have in store for us. Assuring us that something good is going to happen again something very good. The reason Paul is doing this, the reason he includes this passage in his letter to the Corinthians is because a number of the Corinthians are living like they're enjoying the best life has to offer and the best God has to offer right now. And they have no hope hope for a better future. But they are enjoying some heavenly joys now in the present, more than most of us, I'd venture to say, because if you've been traveling with us these past months through the letter of Corinthians, we've seen that as a community of Jesus followers, the Corinthians are experiencing what we often call a revival. When they gather, they experience rich times of God's presence among them. God is palpably in the room when they gather. So they're passionate, they're fervent, they are speaking in tongues, they're prophesying when they gather, experiencing these miraculous, wonderful phenomena. We've looked at this in past weeks. But the Corinthians are also very immature. They lack character, they're bickering, competing, putting each other down. Their gatherings have devolved into chaos. And throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul has been uh, correcting these problems And now near the end of his letter, Paul is going to go to the root of the problems to correct the bad belief, the wrong perspective, which lies behind a lot of this. It's the wrong belief that nothing good is going to happen in the Corinthians' future. Namely, that there is no resurrection. There's no future life to look forward to. The Corinthians are denying, some of them are anyway, that at the end of history, when Jesus comes back, our bodies will be resurrected from the dead to live a new, more amazing life. Now, why are they denying this? It's not because they're secular, they don't believe in anything beyond the material world. It's not because they don't believe in the supernatural. Rather, it's because as good Greeks, they don't like their bodies. You see, the ancient Greeks believed that the material world was bad, and so our physical bodies were bad and even evil. And so for Greeks, their goal was to escape their bodies, either by getting lost in thought, living in their brains, pondering great philosophical ideas, right, that Greeks are known for that, or by cultivating their spiritual side. And so the Corinthians, as Greeks, they're really into wisdom. If you go back and read chapters 1 to 3 of 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses that there. 
And the Corinthians are also really pursuing these wonderful spiritual experiences they're having. For them, this is what salvation is all about, what the good life is all about. Because Greeks believed your soul, your spiritual side and your mental side was what really mattered. And the Greeks believed in the immortality of the soul, that your soul would last. The soul was divine. The soul was where goodness lay, not the body. That just weighs us down. We need to be freed from that. Now, I can kind of understand why. I mean, is your body sometimes problematic? Maybe, truth be told, you don't like the way it looks, or maybe it's falling apart. You're weary from the pain and the frailty. Now imagine you're living in days when most people don't have soap, you hardly ever get a shower, and there's almost no reliable medical care. And so if I'm a good Greek back then, my body is evil and distasteful to me, and my great hope and desire is to be saved from my body and to live on as an eternal soul. That's why some of the Corinthians are denying the resurrection of the body. They might say to Paul, wait, after I die, Paul, you're saying my body's coming back? I'm stuck in it forever? Why would I want that? I want to be an immortal soul someday, floating off to heaven, finally free from my body. And in the meantime, I'm having these great spiritual experiences. I'm tasting heaven already, so I'm good. Well, to the Corinthians and to us, Paul has an important message. Something good, something even better, far better, is going to happen. And so Paul takes the Corinthians and us to this mountaintop vision so the Corinthians and we can see that the resurrection of our body is actually a wonderful, inspiring future that's in store for all of us. And I hope as we look at this mountaintop vision, we're inspired and encouraged too, and that it changes the way we live now. Now Paul does this. He takes them up this mountaintop to see this vision in three parts in our passage. And part two is the most wonderful, um, but bear with me as I go through part one and as we look at what Paul has to say there in verses 12 to 19, where Paul shows that to deny our bodily future resurrection is actually to saw off the branch we're sitting on. Because Paul points out that if we're not going to be raised from the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised either. If resurrection isn't a thing, if bodies don't get raised from the dead, then Christ, who became human and had a real human body, couldn't have been raised either. Because Jesus was one of us. In fact, if we have put our faith in Christ, then our life is closely bound up in Jesus' life. What happens to him happens to us. The shape that his life took is the shape our lives are meant to take. And if resurrection isn't happening... It isn't happening for us, and it didn't happen for him. And so Paul continues, think of what it means if Jesus didn't experience being bodily raised from the dead. Think about what it means if Jesus died, and that was it. That was the end. Think about what it means if Jesus came and made great claims about God and claimed to be the Messiah and the Savior and the Chosen One, but the powers that be said, oh, no, you don't, and they arrested him and tortured him and shamed and humiliated him, and then killed him. And that was the end. Well, then you better find a new Messiah because Jesus failed. And, and this is all the more so when we remember that Jesus died on a cross. Because in that day, in that culture, people who got crucified like Jesus did were the ultimate losers, the ultimate low lives, the worst tragedies, and the most God-forsaken 
And if Jesus got crucified and that was it, well, then that's all Jesus was. Jesus had failed miserably. God was not with Jesus. And so Paul insists everything, everything hangs on Jesus' resurrection. If Jesus wasn't raised, Paul insists, as we look at these verses, then telling people about Jesus is a waste of time, and those who do it are frauds, and having faith in Jesus is pointless, and there's no salvation, we're still all in our sins, and those who have died are lost forever, and those who believe in Jesus are pitiful losers. We might as well all pack up and go home, and sneak home, for that matter, because nobody or rather hoping that nobody notices what fools we've been. Because it's only if Jesus has been raised that Jesus' death on the cross turns the whole world upside down. It's only his resurrection that turns Jesus' shameful failure on the cross into the greatest triumph, thus calling everything this world stands for into question. It's the resurrection following the cross that says, guess what? Living is actually found in dying, in giving up your life. Down is actually up. The least are the greatest. Strength is found in weakness. The cross and the resurrection, that's the key to the gospel and to the way of Jesus. Well, with that, Paul moves to the second section, section two. And this is where he really leads us up to the mountaintop vista and gives us uh, the, the vision of the future that lays before us so we know, so we can be inspired and grasp the good news that something good is going to happen again. So this is verses 20 to 28. And Paul begins by saying that Christ is the first fruits of God's people. Christ is the first human being of many others to come to be raised bodily from the dead. Now, first fruits is not an analogy that's part of our daily life for most of us. So let me try some other analogies. Your favorite musician is in town. Tickets are hard to get, but you score tickets and you're so excited. You're in, you're going to the show. Christ's resurrection is our ticket. Or you put your house or car up for sale. It's quite an ordeal finding a good buyer. You have disappointments, but finally you find the right buyer. They make you a cash offer with no contingencies, no inspections, etc. You accept it. You sign the contract. You put down a large deposit. Phew, your house or your car is going to sell. Christ's resurrection is that signed contract. Or the love of your life gives you a ring and you say yes and you're engaged. You're going to be married. Christ's resurrection is that engagement ring. Now, I realize these analogies are not perfect because all these things can fall through, right? Because we're dealing with unreliable humans, but not with God. If God pledges that something is going to happen and gives us a down payment, a token of God's commitment, then it's a done deal. And that's what happened when Jesus rose from the dead. It made it a done deal that all who put their faith in Jesus will one day rise as well. Something good, something wonderful is definitely going to happen again. Let me give you another analogy. Before the invention of the light bulb, it was very dark at night. I mean, think, have you ever been out away from houses and streetlights on a moonless night? And it's so dark, right? Now imagine if one day pre-light bulbs like that the sun just stopped coming out. It was dark all the time. Maybe a volcanic cloud circling the earth or something. Can you imagine? 
you couldn't see, you couldn't barely function. Everyone got depressed. I mean, candles and campfires are nice once in a while, but not as a 24-7 necessity. And so we all longed for light, but there was hardly ever any light. Now imagine you hear someone is working on a light bulb that will change everything. Maybe Thomas Edison. Back then, it was a brand new invention, almost magical. And you're cynical that this is, is really going to happen. You're like, right, it sounds far-fetched, you know, too good to be true. We'll see. But then one day, you hear the news that Edison did it. And since you live in the same city as him, you go and you see it. And sure enough, it's a light bulb. It's bright. It's wonderful. He has built a prototype that not only works, it's mass producible. Everyone can have a bunch of these for their houses and for their workplaces to light and cheer everything up. But it will take time. It'll take time until all the bulbs get produced and distributed and you can have yours and the world can be lit up again. Christ's resurrection is that first light bulb. When Jesus rose from the dead, he proved resurrection is a real thing and that it's going to be very, very good. And meanwhile, we are still waiting for ours. But we wait with hope and with confidence and with expectation because we know it's coming. So for the Corinthians to deny our future resurrection is to deny so much of what we're hoping for and to say none of it matters or is real. And so Paul, now in verses 23 and following, leads us up the mountain to see the vision from the top, to see why resurrection is so wonderful and what it is that will be resurrected too, and why it will be so awesome. Listen. Each will be made alive in turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes at the end of history, those who belong to him. Verse 24. Then the end will come when Christ hands over the kingdom of God the Father, or the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Do you see the incredible vision? Wow, something good is going to happen again. Christ is coming back as the man in charge of the struggling world. He's coming back to put everything right. He will be in charge and he will overcome every enemy, every dark and detestable and wicked thing that stands in the way of a new world reborn to what the world should be. Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Think with me. All Christ's enemies will be subdued under his feet. When Christ has accomplished this, there will be no more recessions or inflation or housing crises. No more people losing their jobs or their homes, their, the sense of purpose or worth or source of income that they get from work. There will be no more children who are hungry or parents who worry about providing for them. There will be no more climate change to worry about. No more immoral celebrities or corrupt politicians to give us anxiety or make us depressed. No more COVID or health concerns. No more police brutality. No more racial injustice or strife or unrest. No more protests that turn violent or government turmoil. No more strife on social media or at Thanksgiving family dinner tables. No more war in the Ukraine or anywhere else. No more threat of nuclear destruction. Something good is going to happen again. 
We could go on. No more vulnerable young women being trafficked. No more relationships that are strained and broken with all the heartache that that brings. Nobody crying themselves to sleep at night. Something good is going to happen again. Can you see the view from the top of the mountain? Christ will reign until every enemy is defeated, and the last enemy to be defeated, here's the crescendo, will be death itself. Wow, God will be victorious when even his greatest enemy, death itself, is done away with, and life becomes unquenchable and unstoppable, and the world can flourish with beauty, wholeness, joy, and love, with us alive again like never before, enjoying it resurrection. Next Sunday, we'll see how Paul unwraps this wonder even more. But in the meantime, notice something about what Paul is saying here. I appreciate the sentiment of the old hymn, heaven is my home. But that's not the picture Paul gives us here. In fact, it's not the biblical picture. Heaven is not our home. If by heaven, we mean us floating above around us spirits. This is what the Corinthians thought. It was, it's what the Greeks thought. And, and this idea has seeped into the thinking of Christians ever since. But it is not the New Testament vision. Because for Paul and the New Testament, heaven is not our home. Heaven is just a temporary place of refreshment for our spirit. When we die, before Christ comes back to raise our bodies, our spirits will be with Jesus in heaven, enjoying rest and comfort But that's not our hope, and that's not our home. Our hope is that we will be raised again from the dead. Our bodies will be raised on that last day. Death will be defeated, and heaven will come down to earth, and earth will be renewed and transformed, and we will live with God in the new heavens and the new earth forever. Just read the last couple chapters of the Bible, of Revelation. Can you see the vision from the mountaintop? that something good is going to happen again. Well, if you can, I hope it has the kind of effect on you that I experienced as an impressionable teenager being overwhelmed and inspired as I experienced the Edge fill a stadium with amazing music. I hope it motivates you with what's possible and the future you can have and that as a result, you begin to live differently now as you pursue that future. And that's what Paul goes after last in part three of this passage, verses 29 to 34. He turns to how all this should affect and transform our lives. And Paul addresses three groups of people here. I'll mention them in reverse order. The Corinthians, Paul himself and his team, and those who are baptized for the dead. Now that's the question we all have in verse 29, right? What in the world, what is this thing about people being baptized for the dead? And I wish I could tell you, but we're going to skip right over it because the truth is nobody knows. There's like a hundred views out there in the commentaries, but nobody knows what Paul's talking about here. He and the Corinthians know what this is, but we don't have a clue. So it would just be a distraction for us to speculate. Sorry for those of you who are really curious about that. But next, Paul talks about how he lives and how his team lives in light of the resurrection, in light of this grand vision of the good things that are going to happen in the future. Verses 30 to 32, he says, We endanger ourselves every hour. I face death every day. 
I fought wild beasts in a city called Ephesus. And Paul's likely referring here to some sort of conflict that he had with some powerful and vicious leaders who opposed him. And Paul is saying, I put my life on the line literally. Why? Because I've been to the top of the mountain. I've seen the future that's coming and that's possible. And I'm all in preparing for and living in light of that future. To quote another well-known guitarist, I got my first real six string, bought it at the five and dime, played it till my fingers bled, was the summer of 69. Paul was playing, was practicing at life with all he had until his fingers bled, so to speak. So taken was he by what's possible and what he knows is coming. Why? Because Paul knows that this life is not the end. No, there is a resurrection coming to a new, better life. A life where Jesus has defeated everything wicked and wild, where life can flourish. And Paul is preparing himself and he's preparing everyone else who's willing for that life. And so he ends with a challenge to the Corinthians and to us to do the same. Verse 34, he says, come back to your senses and stop sinning. Stop living for today and the pleasures of today and live in light of your future. Two weeks ago or so, our family purchased a new used car, a very nice, fully loaded Toyota Camry with heated seats and all the bells and whistles, not because that's what we were looking for, but it just so happened that the well-priced car that I found on Craigslist happened to come with all that. We had decided it was time to get a smaller vehicle with half our kids basically out of the house. We didn't really need our minivan anymore. And also our van was quite old. It was requiring a lot of repair. So guess what we did? Once I found this new car and and knew we were going to be getting it, before we even had the car, we started making plans to clean up the van because we needed to sell it. I offered to pay Rachel to wash it. And before we had our new car on the road, we were out there with the old one, vacuuming, scrubbing, cleaning. Now, what motivated us to do all this on like a cold winter day? Because usually we're not great, to be honest, and they're the best of circumstances about keeping our van nice. But now we were motivated by the excitement, by the vision of something new that was going to happen. A nice newer family car. How about you? How is the good news of all that lays in store for us going to motivate and change your behavior and the way you live? Because we are a people who believe in the good news that something good, something very good is going to happen.